Good morning. This is Ewan Thomas again from Planet here with Pure West Radio. And it's a pleasure to be with you with less than a week to go now until the big day. So, are you ready? Have you bought your gifts? Cards posted? Let's hope that it'll be a good Christmas this year, despite all the challenges which we're facing. And 
What we'd like to do this morning is to kind of have a look back specifically at some of the projects which have been funded through the LEADER programme here in Pembrokeshire. Now, as we teased last week, many of you will know about the LEADER programme. It's a European fund which Planet has administered here in Pembrokeshire for many, many years. But as we now come to the end of the whole programme, it's a really good opportunity to look back and see about some of the projects here in the county which have benefited from the work undertaken by the team here under the banner of Arwain Sir Benvro and working through the Local Action Group. And just to remind everyone, the Local Action Group is a fantastic collective of individuals from across the public, private and third sectors who gave freely of their time to actually look at the project applications as they came in and work with the team at Planet to actually see how we can make the best use of some of those fantastic, innovative, grassroots, community-led ideas. The first of those particular projects that we're going to look back on this morning is a project which started back in October 2017 and finished in October 2018. The project total cost was just over 21,000 and that was a project called the Compassionate Communities Project here in Pembrokeshire. My colleague Abby Marriott spoke to Luke Conlon about the project itself and how it was a project which was looking at how it could talk about the issues arising from ageing, sickness and an active approach to community development. The project itself involved people in their own end-of-life care and support concerns and solution and how it can in turn change social environments, cultures, conduct and attitudes towards end-of-life experiences and self-care and the potential to greatly reduce the pressures on overstretched statutory health, social services and third sector support. So let us sit back and reflect as Abby talks to Luke about the Compassionate Communities Project here in Pembrokeshire. Radio Planet, the Planet Podcast. So I'm here on Zoom with Luke Conlon from the leader-funded project, uh, the Compassionate Communities Project. Hi, Luke. Hello. Hello, Abby. Thanks for inviting us along today. Thank you for coming. Can I ask you to tell us a bit about the Compassionate Communities Project? Uh, Compassionate Communities is... um, Really, I'll explain more. What is Compassionate Communities? Compassionate Communities is um, a grassroots public health approach to end-of-life care. It's all about how we as individual citizens in our families, in our friendships, in our community networks, how we support each other around issues around death, dying, bereavement and grief. Um, So it's a a public health approach to how we can support each other and to take the pressure off our colleagues in the health and social care services. And so we need to start educating ourselves. So the compassionate communities uh, approach started in Canada and Australia and has come to the United Kingdom there. It's been here for about 10 years now. And it's just trying to create ways where we can engage with each other in the community to support each other around planning for the future, planning for our future care. So the pathway to developing this project that we had funding from the leader funding funder was uh, we did a five-year project with Paul Satori Foundation in uh, Hartford West, which is a hospice at home support services. And there we developed a scheme together with our colleagues in Paul Satori 
to raise awareness within the community of the need for people to think about their, their wishes for their future care. So if there was a situation in the future that we were to find ourselves um, seriously ill, unable to speak for ourselves, um, we, we would, um, yeah, unable to, to, to speak for ourselves, what do we want? So if we leave it, if we leave it uh, too late, um, we put a lot of pressure on the health, our health professionals to make decisions on our behalf. So within that, within that project, we, um, so it was, it was quite top heavy. It's a lot of deep conversations within that whole compassionate communities. But we came to a point where we found that, right, there are maybe 5% of the population at any one moment who are seriously ill, and they need to be having these conversations about how they want their care to be delivered. Um, but for the other 95% of the population, we need to be talking about the future because we will all age, we will all experience illness, and one day we will um, we will die, actually. I'm afraid to say, really, but uh, it's true. And we need to get prepared for that, but not in a, in a, in a, a doer sense. Anyway, we saw an opening for us to um, maybe train up volunteers and to go into communities and have nurturing conversations around planning for the future. Um, so that's how we arrived at and making a bid to the leader fund to develop this notion of compassionate communities or compassionate communities Pembrokeshire. Um, yeah, so that's how we, that's the sort of bit of background to where we arrived at the funding. Thank you, Luke. So can I ask you how a uh, leader as a whole or the team supported your project? Well, um, it was quite, um, it was quite pleasing really, uh, the synergy uh, where we we came we came to a point where we could see there was a need on one hand for um, intense uh, healthcare nursing practitioner input into supporting people to talk about end of life care, and also the other side is what we could um, do to promote the need to talk about the future with the general population, and so to come across the leader funding, which was you know for us it was a it was a fund that was sort of tailor made for us to enable us oh gosh. Here's a fund here that can enable us to, to lever in funding for about 12 months to enable us just to go into communities and find out what works. How do you initiate a conversation in a community without scaring living daylights out of people? Because death and dying is not, it's not, um, it's, it's not a happy subject, but really we are talking about how we want to live our lives. So um, to come across a fund and also the, the, the approach through Planet is that we were able to submit a proposal and um, the feedback from that proposal is really a structure to help us develop a strong bid and then to actually access the funding but also as well as getting the funding we also had um, a nominated officer it was Natalie who we worked with uh, over the 12 months who was able to guide us and support us to keep keep documentation together and uh, and that really helped us guide the project over 12 months so but both the money and the continued support from Planet through the leader funding was really um, critical to our success. Really. So when you think about the project itself, that, that 12 months, what would you say went well about the project? What went well is that we were able to um, choose, we chose three or four communities in Pembrokeshire at the time. So we chose Pembroke, Pembroke Dock, um, Haverford West, and Fishguard 
And we chose those communities um, to go and book out community halls and put on events, welcoming events that people would come in to talk about the future. So we were able to put on cafes, which we called compassionate community cafes. And they were sort of glorified coffee mornings, but you would invite the community to come in and you'd have a guest speaker. It could be a funeral director to talk about how do you plan for your funeral. It could be um, a solicitor who would talk about things like power of attorney of how you can make arrangements um, for people to speak on your behalf should you get ill in the future. And there's two aspects to that. One is your health needs and one is your financial needs. And they're both separate. And also just sit around with a cup of coffee and cake and talk and engage in everything about life and the universe, really, to be honest. And so we were able to, to book out community halls in those three or four areas um, to scope out um, yeah, to, to invite people in, have those conversations, but also to seek out volunteers, to put out an advert there, to look for volunteers who'd like to help us develop that journey. And I think we recruited over over 10 volunteers to help us over the 12 months. Um, so we learned a lot in those 12 months. We're also putting on film clubs. We're showing humorous British films uh, around death and dying that invited people in to talk. Ogrinberian was the other community we worked in. So they were the four communities. Um, so it was just, um, it, it turned, we weren't, although the subject of death and dying is not very appealing, we didn't really talk about death and dying. We are talking about life because it's all about how you want to live out the rest of your life. You know, about looking at, as, 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 um, as you reach elderhood, say you reach your 60s, it's about looking at, looking back on your life and looking forward to well, what else do you want to do? What is your legacy? That, you know, it's, just, it's, it's a grander scheme. And out of that, we developed compassion, our compassion for our neighbours. We learned in those cafes around grief. We, we ran uh, a week-long festival in Hartford West called Good Grief Festival, where we put on events in Hartford West to bring people out to talk about death, dying, and making plans for the future. So uh, that was very important as well, really. We wouldn't have been able to... Um, Develop the project without volunteers. And these were so well-meaning, compassionate uh, people in the community who stood up and said, yes, we'd like to join that journey. Um, with over 20 volunteers, between the, the leader funding, developing Compassionate Neighbours, right through to developing uh, the Nostar. Um, and uh, very grateful, really, um, for their presence. And um, thank you. Okay, Luke, so would you mind telling us Perhaps what's gone on since the leader funding came to an end or what's next for your project? Well, when the leader funded, towards the end of the leader funding, because we built up a knowledge of where people were at, what was, what was the gaps in Pembrokeshire in particular around promoting a positive attitude towards end-of-life care? Um, now, all, all the way along, we had great support from Hulda Health Board, um, colleagues in Hulda Health Board who, um, who supported us on this journey because they could see the other side of the equation in that people coming into their services not having made plans for times when they'd be ill and a lot of crisis, a lot of stress at that point. So they could see the benefits of a, of a campaign to support people to make plans before before things, before, um, yeah, before it's too late really. Um, so enable us to dig deeper. And what we came up with is that we um, we saw the need for um, the notion of people dying alone. So in Pembrokeshire, we have you know very high rates, perhaps the highest rates in Wales of people dying alone. As people dying, 
dying alone with no family or friends around. And that's, that's you know, part of the, the, the nature of Pembrokeshire. People come here to retire, for example. One half of the partnership dies and one person's left on their own uh, with no family or friends around. And that was a typical example. So we developed a project within South Pembrokeshire District Hospital to train up volunteer bedside companions who'd go into the, the hospital in South Pembrokeshire and sit with people who are who are alone um, somewhere dying alone and just offer presence. Uh, now, this was greatly received by the nursing staff in the hospital because they're all very busy. And you know, to have someone, a volunteer to come in and sit with a patient and just sit there and just um, develop a presence. So that's what we developed and we called it NOSTA, which is the Welsh word for good night. But also we used the letters NOSTA to mean no one should die alone. So that the funding from Leader enabled us to develop a NOSTAR project. And we developed that. And we started in January 2019. And that went on until March 2020 when uh, the pandemic struck. And we had to leave the hospital. And we had to close the project, really, straight away. But um, we were able to develop. I think it was the first project in Wales sitting with people dying alone. So thank you so much for coming to tell us about the Compassionate Communities Project. We'll include a link in this to your project case study for people to read a bit more. And can they find you online if anyone has any questions? Yes, they can contact me at luke at communitychoice.org.uk. Um, as we speak now, we are looking to, I think we need to keep going with this Compassionate Neighbours initiative. And we, uh, you know, we, we, there's a need for it more than ever. So we are looking to develop a bid to lottery to develop a compassionate neighbours scheme in Pembrokeshire. So anybody wants to get involved with that, they're more than welcome really to join us on that journey. Thank you. That's good to know. Thank you, Luke, for joining us. And there you have it, with big thank you to my colleague Abby Marriott for talking to Luke Conlon there about the Compassionate Communities Project, um, which, as we mentioned, was operational between 2017 and 2018 here across Pembrokeshire. Have a Merry Christmas, everyone. Your Pembrokeshire Christmas station, Pure West Radio. I wanna wake up every morning feeling better Cause I know you're sleeping by my side And every moment we're together I remember just to keep it all for you and I I see the body in the sunlight Feeling the heat and it feels right I wanna do this for the rest of my life Oh, I know, I know you know the vibe I wanna stay with you every night You and me underneath the lights I'm always good when you're by my side I know, you know, you're on my mind You really make me come alive I wanna be here for the rest of my life Looking for sun rays Needing them good days Fly me away, away You're my holiday Cool like the ocean Lost in emotion Find me
things you say And every time we're in the middle of the city I imagine us so far away I see that body in the sunlight Feeling the heat and it feels right I wanna do this for the rest of my life Oh, I know you know you're on my mind You really make me come alive I wanna be here for the rest of my life Looking for some
the next project which we would like to kind of take a trip down memory lane is a more recent project now we all know through the pandemic and through lockdown that many people were really kind of looking at what was on their doorstep in terms of food and drink production so we worked as planned um, with our colleagues in Ceredigion and in Carmarthenshire to bring together our three counties to look at what is the importance of local food and sustainable models of food distribution. Now, as you're tucking into your breakfast this morning, where has that produce actually come from? Where do you actually go to get your, your bacon, your sausages? Well, we wanted to find out, as a result of COVID and lockdown, have people's attitudes and behaviours to local produce and supply chains actually changed? And can this become a more sustainable method in terms of what people actually buy and where from? We're really lucky here in West Wales that we have fantastic producers across Pembrokeshire, Ceredigion and Carmarthenshire. And we all know that we have our go-to when we want to treat so planted through Arwainsir Benro and with leader funding and working with our leader colleagues in Ceredigion and Carmarthenshire went to actually find out a little bit more and we commissioned Miller Research to actually undertake a feasibility study to look at what people actually thought about food distribution in South West Wales. What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? And is there something that we can really look at as a sustainable model? So one of the last leader-funded projects here in West Wales, sit back and again listen to what actually happened when we undertook a feasibility study on the grandly titled Sustainable Logistic Models of Food Distribution in South West Wales. Radio Planet, the Planet Podcast. The LEADER programme is part of the Welsh Government Rural Communities Rural Development Programme 2014-2020, which is financed by the Welsh Government and European Agricultural Fund for Rural Development. So I'm here on Zoom with Tom Bajada and Nick Miller from Miller Research, and we're here to talk about the feasibility study on sustainable logistic models of food distribution in South West Wales. So hi, Tom. Hi Abby, thanks for inviting us. You're welcome. Would you mind telling us about uh, about this feasibility study? Yeah, so um, it's around about a year ago in, in September 2020, we were commissioned by the local action groups of Ceredigion, Carmarthenshire and Pembrokeshire, uh, with Ceredigion as the lead organisation, to conduct a feasibility study on uh, sustainable logistic models on food distribution. Um, so this was a sort of leader-funded project and something that effectively, given the context, we were looking at trying to sort of develop a model that can help get more local produce in, in the mouths of, of local consumers. Um, so the way we sort of went about doing that was we spoke to different local um, stakeholders in the region, um, producers, consumers, retailers, distributors, all these different stakeholders to get a sense of what was currently there in the region at the moment. So we were mapping the different assets, um, because something that we wanted to emphasise in the study was not to create something that would work against existing arrangements. We wanted to build on, on the existing assets that were in place. Um, so we sort of spoke to these different stakeholders. We did some mapping work. Um, and from that, we basically wanted to come out with a model that was sort of holistic. It was systemic. It incorporated all the different 
sort of interests of the different groups um, and that would benefit the region as a whole. Um, in the context of, of the study, there's been a lot of publicly funded initiatives in, in sort of across the country, but something that was more urban based. Um, so the sustainable food cities and sustainable food places initiatives in England were very much sort of urban focused and in Southwest Wales, it's obviously a more of a rural context, something that we wanted to look at developing to make sure that obviously the distribution challenges are very different. So we wanted to create a model that was suitable for the Southwest region. Um, Within that, we recognise that Pembrokeshire, Carmarthenshire and Ceredigion all had their own individual context as well. So that was something we wanted to reflect in the study. That's great. Thank you. So can you tell us a bit about Miller Research and is there anything else that you want to tell us uh, that you covered in the study? Yeah, so we're um, a research consultancy based in uh, just outside Abergavenny in Monmouthshire. Um, we've been sort of doing a lot of research, evaluation, consultancy work for, for a fair, fair while now. But um, in the public sector, we sort of operate across a number of different sectors. We have a particular um, specialism in food and drink. And uh, over the years, we've done a number of different studies um, in Southwest Wales, in the sort of field of food and drink, in agriculture, um, and general sort of sustainability. Um, so, for example, we've done evaluation of clusters in, in the food and drink sector in Wales. We've also looked at the sort of the impacts of Brexit on producers, which is quite relevant to this study. Um, and so we sort of had a real interest in having a hand in helping develop a model and creating a system that can really help promote Welsh food and drink. Because I think from doing the work over the years, we recognise there's a huge potential. And obviously, it sort of, as a sector, it has a massive strategic importance in Wales. Um, but that potential has perhaps not been fully developed. So we're very keen to help in any way we can to sort of help Wales fulfill its potential in that sector. Um, and in the Southwest Wales region specifically, there is there is a lot of um, assets to sort of help push that forward. In terms of the approach we took to the study, um, so we, we sort of initially looked at different models that were in place. Um, so you've got your farmers markets, your food hubs, um, sort of independent retailers. And we did a sort of SWOT analysis looking at the strengths and weaknesses of those different models. So for instance, with farmers markets, one of the strengths is it's got a very good connection between the producer and the consumer. You know, you can have a chat, develop that relationship. Um, but a negative is that it's sort of quite time consuming for the producer. They have to obviously go down there themselves. Um, and with a lot of small businesses in Wales, that was a, an issue that we came across a lot was these small food producers, you know, they're, they're working with a small number of staff. They haven't got lots of time to be putting into, you know, developing with the producing side of things. Um, logistically, it's challenging to set up distribution networks on their own. And so, so we sort of looked at that and, and what worked well in across the different models. Um, we also did some consumer segmentation work, which is effectively one of the main challenges that we came across. Um, there's obviously no consumer is the same and there's different types of consumer. So for instance, we split it into four different types. So we had what we sort of called hardcore activist consumers, which are ones that are already pretty engaged with local food. You know, they go to the farmer's market regularly. They, they sort of buy a lot of local produce. Um, but then there was sort of a middling group, what we titled sort of social buyers, people that sort of might pop in on the weekend and get 
some local food as a treat, but don't regularly do it. Um, and believers who are sort of similar in that sense. And then the final group was local food skeptics, which is basically um, a group of, of consumers who don't really engage with local food, often for price sensitive reasons. They find it's too expensive. Um, they don't have the time to, to go and do that. You know, they're on a family, a large family with a budget, say. Um, so we sort of mapped out the different types of consumers and what needs each of that group would have. Um, and then we sort of, from that, we created what we titled an expert group, which was a group of about eight to 10 key stakeholders in the region um, from different sort of aspects, as I mentioned, in sort of retail distribution, um, you know, producers, just local small cell scale growers. And we convened two workshops with them where we talked about the key issues that were important to them. Um, and then likewise, we held a consumer focus group um, across the, the three areas where we sort of looked at why, what are the certain barriers to local food purchase from that sort of perspective, what would engage them more to buy more local food. Um, and then we also distributed a consumer survey as well. So from all that field work, we then developed a model um, and different action plans came out of that. Thank you. Much more to it than I realised. Yeah. <laughs> um, so taking into account that the study was facilitated through COVID times and it focuses on the three regions working together, do you think that the study highlighted any significant challenges um, and particularly for perhaps regional or for each county or anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, obviously COVID, COVID is a massive um, challenge and going into the study, you know, the, the closure of farmers markets due to the restrictions and um, the impact on, on revenue for different businesses and growers was, was a massive um, sort of challenge coming into it. And I think there were also other elements. So obviously with Brexit and, and climate change, there's sort of been a real need to shorten the supply chain because, you know, and this is something that's come out aside of food and drink over the past few months, you know, with long supply chains, there comes comes issues with that and um, distribution elements. So the challenge has been really to try and shorten that. Um, but beyond the sort of the COVID element, I think there's also the aspect of sort of consumer perception of local food was a challenge. So producers expressed some frustration that when we were asking consumers, you know, what will get you to buy more local food? And they're saying, well, the price is too expensive. But a lot of producers sort of felt, well, the price has to be more expensive because we're, you know, growing it more sustainably. We're, we're sort of taking into fact the environmental impact of the food. So that was a challenge, sort of trying to meet those two um, perceptions of what local food should be sort of priced at. Um, I think from a producer perspective, um, and, and Nick probably will have some other things to say on this, but there were some issues such as access to land for growers. So if this model was to be scaled up, you know, that that was a particular concern. And also the current framework for procurement that's in place at this moment. Um, some producers felt that there was perhaps too much emphasis on the on the cheapest bidder and, and on, on cost. And they felt that procurement should be perhaps scored more on the value that they can bring to the community and environmental aspects as well. So that was um, mentioned quite frequently by certain producers. Um, processing capabilities in the region was uh, a significant challenge that was highlighted um, as something that, you know, the lack of large scale abattoirs in the region to develop 
um, bread meat was mentioned, and then last mile distribution. So the, the cost, you know, almost half of the costs of distribution being in that last mile, getting to that door of that customer. Um, and these were a number of different issues that were raised by producers themselves. Thank you. So they were raised, and but in a way it kind of shows you the opportunities. People are keen, would like to try new ways, just need the, the chance perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's been a lot of positives coming out of this, and obviously we focus on the on the negatives. But for every sort of challenge that was raised, there was a proposed solution. Um, so in the instance of the procurement framework, there was a sort of looking at how can we change the scoring system with that, with distribution, um, the potential involvement of the local health board. However, was is something that's a real key enabling factor, as something that can help where they have distribution networks themselves, which smaller producers can sort of piggyback off and use, um, is something that's seen sort of really excited producers because the involvement of public sector, one, obviously that distribution network that's in place logistically is a big help, but also from that stability and the point of view of any future model, the perception that comes with public sector involvement means that there's sort of a prestige with it, a predictability to it um, as producers know with issuing of forward contracts in the public sector, there's going to be that sustained demand there. So they don't have to worry, you know, yes, I'm developing, I'm in a contract now where I'm producing veg for a local school, but is it going to be there in six months' time? There's sort of more stability with it. Um, I think seasonality of, of menus is also mentioned. So if the public sector was involved, say feeding schools and feeding hospitals, creating menus that were seasonal with produce so then producers had an easier time of, of meeting that demand rather than having to sort of produce different um different produce all year round was, was sort of quite challenging especially given the scale of local growers in the region um, and i think the third positive that came out of any public sector involvement is what i mentioned earlier with a holistic model um, if there is public sector involvement say there is local food going into local schools, feeding kids there. A massive part of that education of the benefits of local food can tie in really nicely. So if kids are sort of eating local food in, in the canteen, then they're more likely to sort of grow up knowing the value of that and more likely to buy it in the future. They're also can sort of go back to their, their homes, tell their parents about, oh, you know, we had this really nice um, food from, from a grower just down the road. And that can sort of, it all ties into this teaching people the value of local food and perhaps why it might benefit them to go down the farmer's market more or pick up from a food hub. Um, and certainly with the challenges of COVID, the, there has been a change in consumer behaviour as well. So we found that consumers have shifted perhaps more from the high street onto online retailers um, and local food producers have been more engaged in the online delivery side of things, which means that their produce is going to the doors of, of consumers. And for those that are quite time poor, having local food being able to be delivered to their door is a massive thing. Um, you know, beforehand, if going out to drive to a farmer's market on a weekend when they're only open, when they've got a million other things to do is, is, is a challenge for some customers. So that has been something that's been massive. Um, and that shift um, to online, which producers have, have sort of followed as well, and which consumers are wanting to buy more local food. You know, during the pandemic, 
a lot, you know, when we held the consumer focus group, quite a few individuals mentioned, you know, they sort of wanted to buy more local food and they almost sort of felt a bit guilty that they were still going to the supermarkets and they wanted to engage more with it. So that was a massive positive. Okay, thank you. And maybe if I can come to you, Nick. Um, so, so food security and supply chains is something that's high on the agenda for lots of us, something we'd like to explore further. With a focus on, as well, on what can be produced in Wales, commercially produced. So did the study demonstrate any opportunities for this? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, certainly food security was, was kind of pretty much front of mind for people at the start of the pandemic. Uh, we saw the kind of panic buying. We saw the um, supermarket shelves rapidly emptying. Nobody could buy um, kind of fresh goods. Um, everybody ran out of pasta and toilet paper and all the kind of stock, stock items as well. Um, so I think that kind of exposed some of the issues around the current distribution models and the fact that you know, we're, we're shipping goods all around the country um, to get into our stores. And, you know, we know that Wales is a really great food producer and, and this region has amazing um, meat, fish, dairy, vegetables, baked goods, really big range of food. But the issue is, as Tom said, is it's getting food from those individual producers to the consumers and especially in the rural area. And it was quite interesting, I think, at the after the initial shock of people not being able to buy in the way they were used to at the start of the pandemic, we started to see lots of innovation coming out in terms of local distribution. Um, so, you know, food hubs sprung up in car parks across the region. Um, farmers markets went online. And, and there was a much bigger interest in local food and short supply chains. And, you know, there was that massive rise in, in kind of home baking and people started to learn to cook and, you know, use what was around them, which was great. Um, so people really turned to their kind of local producers and local businesses. And, and, and in response, those businesses became very, very creative at delivering that local food to households. So, I mean, I guess the hope is that some of this will stick um, as people kind of get away from the kind of traditional messages of price and convenience. Um, and, and some of that kind of um, persists. Now, again, as Tom said, the kind of critical thing really in terms of food security and developing this system is, is this issue of distribution and particularly the last mile. And I think if you talk to some of the kind of bigger food distributors who sell to consumers, they'll say that last mile is the expensive bit um, because you've got you know, one box of veg or one parcel of food that's got to go some considerable distance sometimes to get to a householder. And, and that's why we think that the public sector has this opportunity to play a real critical role. So you know, traditionally procurement's meant buying commodity food um, at the lowest possible prices. And it's interesting to use the acronym MEAT for the most economically advantageous tender, um, whereas actually what it tends to do is just kind of um, procure out local meat. Um, but you know, largely that's coming from national chains, um, no links to the region. And although there's some really good examples of um, local and regional suppliers who've tried to address this, um, perhaps particularly in red meat and vegetables, um, it's still been a real problem. Um, but I think post-COVID and now with the public sector commitment to decarbonisation and the kind of net zero 2030 commitment, um, there really should be scope to factor in carbon footprint when we're procuring food. And this is like then an opportunity for more localised supply chains to develop. So then if this can happen um, and the public sector can start to buy in more of what's in the region, then we start to get a kind of critical mass for building supply, or at least allowing existing producers to consider where their produce is going. I mean, one of the things, we're based on, a, on an organic farm and 
And one of the things that kind of frustrates me about a lot of my neighbors produce sheep and they have no idea where they end up. Um, and if we can start to get farmers to think more of themselves as food producers rather than as somebody who produces, you know, the best possible sheep in the best possible way and takes it to market and forgets about it, then that's going to be a good thing. So if we can try and divert more of that produce into the region, then that, that, that's going to be a win. And if we can do that, then once we've got that, it means the, the kind of local and regional distribution is going to be in place as it moves stuff around to supply the public sector. And if we can piggyback on that, to shift that produce back the other way to hospitality venues, to retailers, or to food hubs, or even straight to the door. Um, then we've got the startings of, of a proper kind of integrated food system. And, and there's one other element, which again, Tom touched upon, um, which is the, the capacity of the public sector to actually use what we produce in the region. Um, and, and one of the things there is that catering systems over the years have been de-skilled in a lot of cases. They're geared towards processed food, and, and kind of cooked your ready meals. And we don't produce those to any great extent. So you know, we may need to think about how we build that kind of processing infrastructure um, that allows people to actually utilize what we grow or produce in the region. Um, so if, for example, we were, you know, we were producing cooked chill ready meals for the health sector or for the public sector, um, it's really good because it's adding value to the foundational economy. Um, it's, 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 um, producing a local destination for kind of local ingredients. And then potentially we can overproduce and sell that through the retail sector and, and get kind of locally sourced food to residents who wouldn't normally have the capacity to buy local. Um, so if we can kind of build that convenience into buying local food, then that opens up a whole new market. And, and we think there's real potential through what we've seen and the conversations we've had um, for that to happen in this region. Okay. So what do you think um, what do you feel were the main achievements of the study? And is there anything you'd like to share about next steps or anything that's come about since the study was completed? Yeah, um, many, many successes, I think, that came out of it. Um, first and foremost, getting people into a, well, what is a virtual room and over the past year discussing what are the main issues, what are the main problems for them is sort of that first step. But then obviously, the proposed solutions is is the massive thing really so obviously you know it's, it's one thing to say um there's you know the procurement framework is is not scored in a way that we think is fair or the distribution network is too burdensome at the moment um but coming out of this you know we came with some you know some solutions came up and and we sort of tried to incorporate that into the model um which was massive but the forming of the expert group itself um, is something that we see as playing a big role going forwards. So in terms of next steps, you know, we would hope that the expert group will sort of continue to engage with the local action groups in Commandments of Ceredigion and Pembrokeshire um, as a means of really helping drive this forward because they have the expertise and the knowledge and combined with the uh, local action groups who, you know, have the sort of political and, and local governmental knowledge and the knowledge of the local area itself, we feel that that collaboration can really help drive this forward. So coming out of the study, we identified seven action plans, which were sort of different, didn't have to be um, implemented chronologically, but seven key components we felt were key to helping create a model that would work sustainably and for years to come in a way that would really help drive forward local produce in Southwest Wales. So the public sector involvement, as we mentioned, um, something which we haven't mentioned was the potential role of a community interest company 
which was something that we could see as helping take away the logistical burdens for local producers. Um, some they sort of create a platform which would help promote the local producers' produce, um, help promote the brand um, as something sort of acting as an intermediary to really drive this forward. Um, and then sort of looking to develop, build on those local supply chains, those assets um, in the region. So see there's different players, sort of Castle Howell, um, Blasavoid, Puffin Produce, all these different individuals could have a potential role in, in a model, really helping the smaller producers. Um, and then also looking at accreditation and marketing, how that can sort of help and something that producers felt they were certainly open to that as a concept, as long as it wasn't sort of overly burdensome, because it can give consumers confidence that the produce is meeting certain standards. Um, and obviously in Pembrokeshire, there's already sort of the Pembrokeshire produce mark, which is something that could be built upon in this sense. Um, then there's a consumer engagement side of things, which we also thought the involvement of sort of community initiatives. So examples being where you know, local growers go into schools and sort of teach them a little bit about how they grow their produce as well as something that is, is sort of a, a big element of it. Introducing smart distribution um, in sort of online ordering, app ordering, using that in a way that's sort of efficient and effective. Um, and then bringing in the hospitality and tourism sector as well as, as consumers, but also helping use their venues and, and assets in the distribution capacity as well. So with these action plans, they sort of really outline next steps. Um, now, each area might find that they implement those different elements at different stages. Um, and some will see them as more sort of an immediate um, necessity and other aspects of the action plans will come later down the line. But what it does is outline the key steps that can, can be taken to really help get this off the ground. Um, and a lot of it is involved in getting those key stakeholders talking together, sharing best practice, collaborating, um, easing those distributions logistically, um, and sort of taking it forward from there. I think just just to add to that as well, I, I think the other thing that's really critical is, is as Tom mentioned, the, the involvement of the expert group and getting producers actually involved in the process. I think we've seen a lot of schemes in the past that have failed. There's a lot, you know, a lot of people got burnt in history um, through trying to do local food distribution. And I think what's been really good about this process has been that you know, we've really had that involvement. And it's really important that that continues. Um, and also that this does continue as a regional approach, because I think anyone local authority area on its own is probably going to struggle in terms of capacity and also the size of the market. So I think if we can deliver a regional model, um, there's real scope to develop something in Southwest Wales that then could be maybe scaled out by replication across Wales and then into other areas as well. Because it's interesting when we were looking at best practice um, to try and find you know, what had gone on elsewhere, there's very few examples of successful models in rural areas. And you know, we looked at ones in Denmark, we looked at ones in other parts of Europe, but um, really, this is something that if we could crack it in Southwest Wales, it would be a, a real exemplar for other regions to learn from. So thank you, Tom and Nick, for joining us today. We're going to put links and contact details in with the podcast uh, write-up for anyone to come back to us. And there we go. So a big thank you to my colleague, Abby Marriott, there for talking us through um, the food distribution uh, project there 
with our colleagues from Miller Research. So fantastic to find out more about the focus groups, the producers, the expert group, the action planning and the way forward and how we can all look at how we can perhaps buy a little bit more locally and promote those local producers across Pembrokeshire, Carmarthenshire and Ceredigion. So this morning we've heard from two of the projects which have been funded by LEADER, um, the Food Hub project and also now in terms of compassionate communities which we heard at the top of the hour as well. Next week we're back again for the final time uh, this month and obviously it's Boxing Day as well. Um, So we will be here on the 26th and we'll be taking another look at perhaps another leader funded project as we come to a close and the project we'll be looking at next week is the LEAF project which is the Local Energy Action Force project. We'll also be having a reflection as it's the time of year when we talked back to the Dean of St David's Cathedral, the very Reverend Dr Sarah Rowland-Jones, over a Zoom link at the start of the year back in February when we were all of course in lockdown. We had a really fantastic conversation with the Dean about what a cathedral is, what a Dean does and how lockdown had affected the work of the cathedral there up at St David's. So that's all from us for this Sunday. We wish you all a very safe and happy Christmas and look forward to hopefully you joining us next week when we have the final two reflections on our Planet podcasts and interviews and what the leader programme here in Pembrokeshire has achieved working with Planet and our local action group. So take care, stay safe and have a great day. Follow Pure West Radio on Twitter at Pure West Radio. Look what you're doing to me I'm utterly at your whim All of my defenses down Your camera looks to me With its x-ray vision And all systems run the ground
Look what you're doing to me. I'm a jelly at your whim. All of my defenses down. Your camera looks to me with its X-ray vision and all systems run the ground. All I can make. 